0: That is Bruce Claggett in for Jill. Thanks for being with us. In the past half hour, we've been talking about the flu and respiratory season as it is, and some of the pressures on the system. Some advice from the news conference that came out uh, late this morning, Dr. Bonnie Henry suggesting for kids, especially, and also for seniors, uh, who are the most vulnerable groups, that they should be getting vaccinations, vaccinations for the flu. Well, that's something to help out, but many of us know many kids are still getting the flu, and many of us adults too. And when it comes to adults, that's taking people out of the workforce at times, but at other times, have you seen this? Some people going to work that are actually sick, and then you have the advice. The advice is what? Here, this time and time again, if you are not feeling well, if you are sick, stay home. Don't come to work. Well, less than a year after the BC government legislated five paid workdays for employees, the BC Federa- Federation of Labor wants the government to. Come back with even more sick days. Sometimes it's beyond five. Sometimes you have different bouts over the course of a year. Five here, but is that going to mean that all five of yours are gone? You come back to work sick? Well, the BC Federation of Labour is pushing for not 10, but 15 sick days. Is that too many? Or is it about right? Well, Suzanne Skidmore is the new president of the BC Federation of Labour labor. Suzanne, thanks uh, so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Bruce.
0: You know, when I think about this in uh, just, we're talking a lot about messaging last hour, but uh, when it is messaging, if you're sick, you're sick, you stay home. Um, That seems to be just popular wisdom, but that isn't always the case for many workers, is it?
1: No, for sure. And I mean, we've just had the uh, five days paid sick leave here NBC implemented, and we know that there's still a lot of issues that go along with that, including, uh, you know, being you know the stigmatizing uh, of the use of the leave that goes goes along with that, and the ex, you know the pressures that employees face to, um, you know, show up and, and participate in the workplace even when they are. And you know, there's also restrictions, so it doesn't actually apply to all workers. And we see this in industries like construction and and the film industries, where the 90 day um, window where folks aren't eligible for that is is problematic. So we know that this is, you know, in five days. Uh, we celebrated that. We asked for more, and our affiliates are going to continue to ask for more uh, because we know that 15 days is kind of the realistic expectation that people have now and especially as we see illnesses you know people recovering from illnesses taking longer and all that all of that we just want to make sure that workers have what they need to be able to be productive uh in their workplace and not get their co-workers sick
0: i understand a lot of people would hear 15 days well that's uh three work weeks and really think that that's over the top but when you start to divide it up, that could be uh, five days here and uh, you can get again sick. We know that COVID is still out there. You can get sick again at another uh, time of the year and uh, and a uh, time again. So that could be five, five and five, or it could be 15 all at once. Um, that's the case, isn't it?
1: Yeah, totally. And we are seeing that. We're seeing... You know, some of the different illnesses that are coming up for people are taking longer and the period of, um, you know, time folks should stay away from their work site, it varies. And so having 15 days is, you know, it's puts people into a good position where we know affordability is already an issue for folks. Um, You know, and the worry about paying rent and and buying food for their kids and all of that. And, And 15 days gives people a little bit of extra comfort in making sure that they don't go to work sick, but they can still afford to pay their bills.
0: Well, what happened last year with the so-called labor-friendly uh, NDP government? I thought we were heading toward 10 days. A lot of people thought we were going to get 10 days, and then it was only five. Why the compromise? What was the big argument or the big challenge in there?
1: Well, you know, I mean, the, we, as I said, we did celebrate the five days. It was the first of its kind in the whole entire country, uh, you know, and there are challenges that uh, the government were facing Uh, with making an argument for this. We felt we made a really strong argument for 10 days and we're going to continue to make that strong argument for 15, particularly now that we've seen the federal government has implemented their 10-day legislation and that exists for federal legislated employees. And so we're going to continue to push on this and make sure that workers have paid sick leave and that they can access it and that there is not... um, unforeseen, you know, reparations for uh, folks taking their sick days. We do see that sometimes.
0: We're talking with uh, Suzanne Skidmore of the BC Federation of Labour about a push for 15 sick days for sick leave. And uh, the timing of this could not probably be better for you, Suzanne, uh, when we start talking about uh, the flu season that we're into, the flu and respiratory season on top of COVID, of course. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know that's uh, that's great when it comes to provincially regulated employees. That's the ones that we can have some control over. But as you know, there are so many, and you mentioned the film industry where you have so many gig employees. You know the ones that uh, if they don't work, they don't get paid. So if I am a, a day actor or an extra in the film industry, or uh, I. Uh, pa working, uh, you know, in the film industry. Uh, mm-hmm. How many sick days do I get, if any?
1: Well, I mean, the big, one of the biggest problems we found is around the restrictions. Those folks aren't entitled to, uh, you know, any paid sick days right now because they don't meet the ninety day threshold. And we have said right from the start when the five days came in that you know, we called for those restrictions to be removed because it doesn't cover all the workers and that doesn't even contemplate the whole entire misclassification of of a whole bunch of workers in the province. That's a whole other conversation. There's a lot of workers who aren't covered by any of the employment standards. You know, we're talking about your Uber and your Lyft and uh, food delivery service folks and anyone who works on an app-based platform. Those folks also who aren't seen as considered workers and employees in this province currently, uh, those folks also aren't covered.
0: Well, not to hand you a low ball, some low-hanging fruit as a question, but is uh, the only solution to that uh, for you, from your eyes, to get them certified and members of the BC Fed? Or are there other ways that we can actually protect workers who are gig workers?
1: Well, right now the government is participating in a uh, consultation process with community with gig workers, with folks who are working in precarious industry. And what we've been calling for is for those folks to be seen as employers, employees, to be considered employees under the Employment Standards Act, and the very bare minimum uh, to be covered by by the Employment Standards Act so that they have the same rights and protections that other workers do. Uh, You know, I mean, you'll probably hear me say this over and over again, but the, you know, the true lift out of, Poverty for many people, of course, is joining a union. So yes, I would love to see those workers come together collectively and collaborate together and join a union and become part of the Federation of Labour.
0: And as Bruce Claggett in for Jill, we've been talking about sick days. How many? What's the magic number? What should be the rule? Right now it's five for employees governed by BC legislation. That's new as of last year. The BC Federation of Labour has been pushing for 15 And Suzanne Skidmore is the president of the B.C. Federation of Labour. She's with us. And also many of your phone calls seems to be a hot topic right now at 604-280-9898. So let's get some of those calls right now. Chris, in North Vancouver, what do you think? The
2: problem
3: is if you start mandating 15 days of annual sick leave, people then start, it's not whether it's necessary, I become entitled to it and people start taking it whether they need it or not. And that leads to huge amounts of abuse in the system that employers start paying for a whole bunch of sick leave that's not actually necessary.
0: Thanks for the phone call. I appreciate that, uh, Chris. And let's pick up on that one. Uh, Is that true, Suzanne? Uh,
1: Thanks. And, you know, we do hear that uh, often as a argument against paid sick leave of any kind and you know as far as I'm concerned it's a it's a bit of a false narrative and we know uh, that there's been some good research um, in countries who have paid sick leave and uh, you know in a different variety of forms of sick leave uh, that that's just not actually true and we know that you know people know uh, that they go to work when they're uh, when they're able to and they don't take advantage of the benefits that they have. And uh, the other piece to that is the cost around, you know, the employer costs and that people will just take all the days that they're entitled to, Uh, you know, I mean, the cost to employers is negligible. There's been some great work on this done by Jim Stanford with the Center for the Future of Work, um, you know, that has compiled some stats around this stuff. And the actual cost of people coming to to work sick is actually greater than the cost of providing sick benefits for for the workers in the workplace.
0: Okay, appreciate the phone call, Chris. To Steve and Delta, your thoughts. Well, a couple
4: of things. I'm a small business owner, and you know, I've got my my wife works there, and my kids are there part time. So, if we're sick, we get no money, and we'll never get any money, and we'd have to pay ourselves. So, it absolutely makes no sense. And a small business, a private business, you know, they can't afford to, you know, basically take. Five to 10% of their yearly profit and give it to sick leave. I mean, the government and large unions, mainly government, they could do it because they don't have to make money. The hospitals don't make money. You know, the government taxation offices don't make money. The city council, people who work at the city hall, they don't make money. So they could give them 50 days off And they just tax us more. They don't, these people, you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult the guests, I'm not saying it this way, but they live in a little bit of a fantasy world because they don't work in the real world where you actually have to make money.
0: No, I hear you, Steve, and I I know plenty of small businesses that have one or two employees. And uh, my concern here, Steve, is uh, that if that one person came to sick because they didn't have sick days to get the other person sick, then you'd have zero employees. Isn't that a fear? We've lost Steve. But um, what about uh, that thought, Suzanne? Is uh, is it uh, not cost-effective for small businesses?
1: Look, you know, we've actually had uh, lots of conversations with folks who run small businesses and have, uh, have already implemented more than the legislated five days um, that the government put in. Uh, they already had paid sick day programs in because we know that the cost of not having any paid sick days Uh, For any employer, whether it's a small business or any other employer, uh, is particularly, you know, we're still in the midst of, uh, you know, flu season, cold season and the pandemic with COVID, uh, you know, the seriousness of having illness and, and full shutdowns in workplaces is more like has more impact on the cost of that than providing folks with paid sick days.
0: Absolutely. John is in the interior. What are your thoughts, John? I'm a small business owner, and I employ 60 staff. Um Your guest is wrong
4: with your first caller when she says people don't abuse it. She's 100% wrong. It gets abused vagrantly. Uh, last January, we had so many people calling in sick as we're trying to hang on uh, to our business. So she's completely wrong and offside on that front. I'd like to know, when is enough enough? Is it going to stop at 15, or is she going to go to 20? Is she going to go to 25? How about 40? Why not give them six months off? Every other month, they can take a month off. Like, when's it going to stop? I would like to know from your guests, when is enough enough? Or are they going to start paying for these sick days? Because I'm tired of the government. We have an employee payroll tax. They are taxing us and putting everything on small businesses back. And small business is the heartbeat of this country, what keeps the country driving. These use red herrings like big, big business and big, uh, big corporations and heavily uh, big profit centers. A majority of the businesses in this, can, in this country are small business. When is, when is enough enough? I, wanna, I want an answer from your guest
0: Okay, I hear your point there, John. Um, it is a concern from businesses when they start to have uh, the feeling that they're not going to be able to produce because of staff uh, not being there. Susanne, uh, John, uh, you could hear he's pretty upset. You could hear it in his voice.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, there it, it has been frustrating and the pandemic has been difficult on all of us in a, in a variety of different different ways. But the reality is that employers have always had a way to deal with situations in their work sites uh, where employees are misusing any of the benefits they may get in their, in their uh, work site, you know, including uh, you know, discipline and dismissal and all those things. That's always existed. And, you know, but the evidence is proves that there is actually uh, there's not a misuse of these benefits in countries that have had them for for years that people use the days that they're in that they need uh, to get through the you know the brunt of their sickness when they're most uh, impacted and
0: Suzanne thank you so much for your time this morning
1: thanks for having me
0: Dr. Anna Wallach is uh, with us, uh, family physician and assistant professor at UBC. Dr. Wallach, uh, you heard about the news conference. You certainly saw some of the uh, the messaging here. Are we on the right track? Do you think?
5: I wish there was a bit more urgency in. Um, I wish there was a bit more urgency in what they were in in the messaging that went out. I agree that this is flu from the before times, to use Dr. Henry's Henry's, um, words. But the problem is it's coming at a time when our hospitals are already under significant strain and we have all sorts of staff shortages and illnesses that normally we would have had the summer to recover, but we didn't. So now with the hospital under strain and an earlier influenza season, that's why we're seeing so much strain on on the children's hospital system, for example.
0: When I hear stories and uh, one of the heart-tugging stories that we've heard in the last couple of days, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we did have the loss of a six-year-old girl. Her family now talking about it um, went into the hospital but uh, ended up passing away during this season. Uh, When you hear these stories as a physician, a family physician, what goes through your mind?
5: Oh, I was absolutely crushed. I have a little girl the same age as Danielle, and my heart just sank when I heard about that. Um, but it's one of the things is that we we tend to forget that influenza can kill. Influenza, people think that, oh, the flu is just a really bad cold, but it's not. Influenza can kill, and it does affect our the extreme ages, so the under fives and the over sixty fives, and so that's why there's always a push for the vaccination campaign. And the flu vaccine may not necessarily reduce transmission, but it will certainly help reduce the severity of of illness should you catch the flu. So, when I heard about um, that that heartbreaking story, I was I was crushed because I felt like we had failed this child because the messaging about vaccination, I don't feel went out as, as strongly as it should have. But also the fact that we knew that this was rising, we knew this was coming early, and it's like nothing was done to prevent transmission with the other layers of protection that we learned about during covid
0: And Dr. Walaka, the number that's coming out, maybe this is not a surprise to you, but certainly when I hear that only 20% of kids in our province between 5 and 11 are vaccinated right now, I think uh, that message, something has gone wrong. Something is not happening that should be happening. Uh, Are we going to get to a point where uh, people may be, kind of pleased or confident that we're getting enough vaccination with that age group?
5: So 20% is appalling and it's one of the, and for the teenagers, it's even lower. I think it was 15% was what they said at the news conference. The, the, a lot of blame falls squarely on the anti-vax movement and the disinformation that is coming out and conflating their fears about, about COVID vaccines with the influenza vaccine and just tarring all vaccines with one brush. Um, people need to remember that the we've been vaccinating against the flu for decades now. And this is something that is safe, is effective. We vac- It's safe for children six months and up, and we need to get that message across and communicate it over the disinformation. The other thing, though, is that this year in particular, it was particularly difficult to get vaccination appointments. And we we knew about the hiccups from the Get Immunized um, campaign. I heard Dr. Um, Penny Ballin mention that they were going to try to see about, you know, getting registration going more more efficiently this weekend. But the, the fact that parents had to register their kids and, and all those extra steps in making it really hard to get a vaccine, I think there, there is some blame on that for why our vaccination rates are so low, that and the anti-vax movement.
0: You know, it's interesting you should mention that. That struck me as a little bit surprising, too. We're on December 5th, and uh, the talk from Dr. Balam was uh, this vaccination blitz on December 9, 10, and eleven. So somehow we're expecting that there will be the ability to have that blitz. I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, My best hopes for it working, but uh, we'll have to see.
5: One of the interesting things is she mentioned um, uh, the blitz involving family doctors. And family doctors are very more than willing and more than able to to vaccinate your children and everybody else. But we were never told about this blitz. Oh, really? Nope. I have not heard any communication about it. And, you know, I offer vaccinations, um, you know, at every opportunity when I have patients. But uh, this talk about a blitz, I certainly never heard anything until, what, an hour ago?
0: Yeah, well, an hour ago, and the blitz starts on the 9th. Yes, yeah. We've been talking about the news conference in the last hour, that news conference uh, with Dr. Uh, Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix and uh, Dr. Bellum, all talking about the flu season and uh, a strong message of getting vaccinations and uh, this vaccination blitz, which apparently is supposed to happen in four days time, a uh, bit of a surprise for family physicians. Dr. Anna Wallach is uh, one of those family physician who hasn't heard anything about that. Also assistant professor at UBC, Dr. Wallach, um, you know, are we going to be able to learn anything from this year, do you think, going forward into the next uh, flu season when it comes up? Because it seems like this one caught us off guard.
5: I think one of the biggest lessons um, with the vaccination program in particular is don't fix what isn't broken. Because this year we trialed a new um, of registration and needing to get invitations and that made life so much harder for a lot of people who wanted to do the right thing and get vaccinated early and they tried to walk into their pharmacies and they they could not get the vaccine and there was there were all these headaches around it and that delayed people's um, vaccination doses and vaccination and may have contributed to part of this and the other thing is just Like I said, we need to remember the lessons that we learned over the last three years from COVID that we need to work on um, um, preventing transmission and things like working on making sure that people have access, equitable access to sick days so that they can stay home when they're sick, they can stay home when their children are sick and um, wearing a mask um, in indoor public spaces so that you're reducing the transmission of the virus. Little things that that we that we learned along the way that need to be implemented so that we can enter the next flu season healthier.
0: Well, yeah, so much of this uh, is talking about things that come down to messaging, uh, and that seems to be, you know, uh, you have to do, you have to do. That's going to be the uh, message for parents, whether it comes down to getting vaccinated or uh, taking other precautions, which really were not talked about much, a little bit of the masking, but not much, Um but boy, the messaging hasn't been strong. Chris and Langley is on the line. Chris, uh, what are your thoughts?
2: Uh actually I have a connection to that child who died. My wife uh worked with uh the child's mom back in the day, so I'm sorry sad. to
0: hear that. And uh yeah. and pass on our best to uh to your wife because that's gonna to be tough for her.
2: Yeah, it's, it's tough, especially when you have kids and you kind of just relate, to uh, try to relate, and, and it, yeah, it's very difficult. But I guess my question comes down to, from my understanding, uh, she had heart condition, myocarditis uh, complications from flu-like symptoms. And so uh, I guess in all of this, uh, and, and this might be part of the, the vaccination, uh, the reason why not people aren't getting vaccinated, but we're hearing from the COVID vaccine that it can cause myocarditis, so can COVID. Now this is the first time I've heard that flu can cause myocarditis. So you mix this all together, and it gives a lot of uncertainty to parents. Nobody wants to hurt harm their child, and so now you've, you're, you're, you're faced with this idea that you might be harming your child, Chris. That capacity. is an
0: excellent call, and for time's sake, let's uh, get uh, Doctor Wallach in on this. Is that a? It's certainly an idea that's out there and a question that's being asked whether it is fact or not, uh, remains to be seen. And let's get down to the, uh, the basics of that. Dr. Wallach, is it fact, is it something to be hesitant in getting a vaccine for?
5: Absolutely not. We, we, yes, we do know that, the, that there is a possibility of myocarditis from um, the COVID vaccines, for example. But th- when with those um, instances, they are treatable and are rare. That's the other thing in the wild so to speak myocarditis can be caused by viral infections any viruses like so the flu can cause um can cause the the myocarditis covid can cause myocarditis so the fact that we want to get the vaccination in is because the vac getting vaccinated will reduce the severe those severe side effects and will reduce that risk of the severe side effects such as myocarditis
0: Doctor, you know, I'm old enough that I remember that when I was in elementary school, we had vaccinations in the school system. Seems like a real obvious one, but uh, that's also when we have public health nurses going into the schools. Uh, Would that solve a lot of this if we had vaccinations in schools?
5: it would for sure um and public health still goes in and vaccinates i think grade 6 um gets vaccinations and they give out kindergarten shots uh vaccinations as well in schools so the the infrastructure is there and giving um, setting up flu clinics in schools would make it a lot easier because it takes that burden off the, the administrative burden off parents. And for those who are concerned that it will be like forcing the children to, to get vaccinated, I mean, to get vaccinated in schools, the kindergarten or the grade six vaccines, you have to sign a consent form anyway, so that your child can get vaccinated. So that is something that um, certainly I wish had been looked at, yep. both for COVID and for influenza, um, and certainly something that, you know, if we're talking about lipsis, I think should be done now.
0: Well, you and me both, uh, it. you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because you do need uh, permission, obviously. And when it comes to schools, you don't have to have a parent uh, arranging time off work in order to do it. So it just seems like a no-brainer that got missed. But maybe that's just me and maybe that's you. Uh, Dr. Walaka, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, it seems Canada seems to be a bit behind on this one. In the States, almost all police forces now have officers who wear the body cameras uh, so that they have some proof or some tracking of what actually has gone down. Well, the RCMP are moving toward this. It's going to be very expensive. And Vancouver, Vancouver Council is going to vote on body-worn cameras for Vancouver Police Department officers. That vote will be coming up later on this week. Someone that is uh, looking into and has been tracking these body-worn cameras for quite some time, researching it as an academic, is Colton Fair from thompson rivers university is a law professor colton thanks so much for joining us thank you for having me uh when we talk about body worn cameras what is the basic idea of having them is it to protect the public over being falsely accused or having something go wrong or is it uh protecting police officers
2: i think it's a, a bit of both so obviously uh uh, the criminal law uh, for the longest time uh, um, would hear all these accusations from uh, criminal defendants saying, look, this officer did uh, some sort of wrong to me. Uh, and those claims were really hard to substantiate. You had a criminal defendant, uh, someone who was accused of crime, not really that inherently trustworthy, uh, saying that the cops did something wrong. Uh, and we tend to trust police officers. And then the digital age came around and we started to see some... Uh, um, some actual footage of, of police doing some, some pretty serious wrongs. And it looked like um, maybe some of these uh, criminal defendants could have been telling the truth all along. Uh, so we, we've we had somewhat of an accountability uh, crisis for, uh, for for police. And I think uh, what these cameras can do is, is start to, for one, rebuild relationships uh, between um, um, or just maybe uh, rebuild uh, trust in, in in police more and more broadly, uh, because if police always know that they're they're being filmed, um, or and the scenarios being captured, well then they will, or uh, at police are much likely, to, uh, much more likely to um, not respond aggressively, uh, to to be respectful of, of those they investigate and so on.
0: We hear like uh, from Vancouver police at the top level, uh, the management side that. Uh, Absolutely. Let's bring it on. Uh, And uh, there has been some reluctance, uh, more from uh, the rank and file, uh, from all police forces. When we talk to police, what is the usual response that you end up hearing when it comes to body-worn cameras? In favour or not?
2: I I think the police themselves uh, are are not um, of, of one mind. Uh, on this issue Uh, a number of of police might might think you know this this is going to um, um, result in any accusations against my my person when I'm working being um, um, easier to deal with and it could be quite beneficial to them some police might also think you know this this could be very fruitful in terms of of investigation because you're constantly recording uh, and and you, you can combine those recordings with other technologies to help you Further your um, your your investigation. So um, I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that the police will always uh, be uh, be opposed to these these cameras, but other police um, might might think that this this will chill their ability to do their their job. Uh, a lot of uh, policing requires uh, discretionary uh, um, kind of uses of, of police powers, and and some police maybe are just uncomfortable with having that discretion being constantly uh, monitored for the same reason that pretty well anyone would not want to have their their, their job performance uh, constantly
0: monitored. Well, one thing we do know for sure is a city, city staff report in Vancouver notes that uh, VPD officers have more than a million contacts with the public every year and get an average of 650 calls every day. So that's a lot And, uh, Mm -hmm. I also would imagine that that means that there is a lot to go through. It's not just the cost. I mean, we always come down to the cost of the cameras is going to be this much, but there's got to be some sort of hiring or some sort of process that is, uh, there to actually go and look at, uh, what's recorded or does that only happen when there's an incident?
2: I I would think that would only happen, uh, when there's, there's an incident, uh, and, most likely when, when the police think that the information could be useful uh, uh, to them in terms of exonerating a police officer or furthering an investigation. But we, we do have some concerns, uh, speaking more from the, the civil libertarian perspective, uh, about, again, how this technology could, could be used. So if you're constantly recording and, say, you want to know when uh whether a particular person was in an area well at some point technology will be be good enough to do this with some precision with things like facial recognition technologies so uh uh, if we have all this data about where people have been um, and you combine that with uh, um, with some of these these new new technologies, this this has the the ability, or at least the prospect, to undermine um, kind of privacy interests, privacy as, as anonymity in particular.
0: Where do civil libertarians uh, fall on this? Not just in our country, but uh, from everything you've heard in the states.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, there, there are these privacy concerns, but those those types of things can also be regulated under the, uh, uh, the the Constitution. And in the United States, I would note that uh, the Fourth Amendment, which is uh, substant- substantially similar to Section 8 of the Charter in Canada, both protecting some, uh, um, people from unreasonable searches or seizures, um, the way they interpret uh, their Fourth Amendment is very different than the way we interpret Section 8 of the Charter. So in uh, the United States, there would be concern about whether uh, you even have any sort of constitutional protection when you're recorded in in public uh, via thousands upon thousands of, of, of state officers. In Canada, the Supreme Court of, uh, has has um, interpreted Section 8 a bit more broadly. So this idea that anonymity is part of the uh, uh, one's privacy rights uh, is something that has a constitutional foundation. So I think in Canada, we would have a, a bit less... Reason to be concerned on the constitutional front because there would uh, likely be, uh, uh, it would likely be necessary to have some sort of regulation of this type of technology to withstand constitutional scrutiny. But at the same time, one one might be concerned about um, the efficacy of these types of cameras. So we might see, uh, as we have seen in the United States, one of the first major studies came out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we, we saw police officers. Uh, um, turning off cameras, or, or sometimes there would be a segment missing. Sometimes they forget to turn them on uh, or would change the camera angle so that it wouldn't catch uh, um, certain incriminating uh, uh, conduct. Um, so that 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 is a concern, but uh, again, technology might might come to to the rescue to some extent because you can program these cameras in a way that they automatically turn on when when say right. once heart rate goes up or something like that.
0: We're talking with Colton Fair, who is a law professor at Thompson Rivers University. Uh, the other thing that comes to my mind is so many, and uh, I think of uh, even here in Vancouver, in the Vancouver area, there's are so many videos on social media that purport to tell us when somebody has captured something on their iPhone that this is what happened. Of course, it's usually the sensational part of um, of what uh, somebody sees and framed as what somebody who is not an expert, not trained, Uh, says it's going to be so is this going to curtail has it in areas where they already have body cams on uh, on police is it going to curtail those iphone tapes uh, that people end up saying yeah this is what happened
2: i I would hope it wouldn't curtail uh, people from taking videos uh, in public of of, of police um, when they think it's it's Something something untoward is going on, uh, because you never know if the, if one camera is going to catch the whole ordeal, uh, and, and we've seen uh, in a few, quite a few instances where a snippet of, of uh, a particular incident uh, really doesn't capture the whole truth. So one would uh, one would hope that a combination of, of more cameras uh, would actually be able to capture uh, the whole truth. But I don't see these um, replacing um, civilian. I uh, need to to record instances as well.
0: Well, very interesting, and it looks like this is definitely the direction we are now going in in our country. Colton Fair, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day.
0: Now, this was a very tense situation last night. Some rounds of gunfire, not just a shot, but rounds of gunfire inside a building near Main Street and Alexander. That's in the Railtown neighborhood. And that, of course, prompted the Vancouver Police Department's emergency response team where specially trained officers, along with what turned out to be crisis negotiators, having to be called in to deal with the situation. Now, I'm not going to spoil it. Well, I am going to spoil it here by saying things were resolved and resolved uh, fairly quickly. But that's not without a lot of uh, quick action and some great response from Vancouver Police uh, uh, members who were able to uh, really get this under control. Steve Addison, Sergeant Steve Addison with the VPD, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, Bruce. Tell me, what exactly did you hear or did officers uh, end up hearing when this first came to light? Yeah, this first came uh
3: to our attention around dinner time or just after dinner time on last night, Sunday night. Um 911 call from somebody reporting that there was somebody firing uh, a gun inside of a uh Um, an apartment building, like a loft apartment building in Railtown. And for for listeners that don't know, Railtown's a small little area in Vancouver, kind of east of Gastown, north of the downtown east side, uh, kind of a converted industrial area. Um, The report was that there was somebody in there who was uh, um, firing off uh, rounds from a gun. Uh, We had a second caller reporting that there's a man out on a balcony. Uh, shooting uh, gunshots off the balcony. So, obviously, a, a very tense and volatile situation, extreme danger for the public, extreme danger for the neighbours, lots of danger for the police, and a lot of danger for the man who was involved in this who could have very easily, as a result of his actions, um, been shot and killed by police in our response. Fortunately, the officers who responded, very highly trained tactical officers from emergency response team, patrol officers, um, negotiators along with other first responders, uh, firefighters, ambulances. We were able to um, um, uh, contain the situation, uh, take the man into custody uh, safely without any serious injury to him, without any, any any injury to other first responders or to the public. So um, a tense situation, but one that ended um, uh, fairly positively given what we were dealing with.
0: Now, when you start to hear that somebody up from a higher level is firing down toward uh, people from a balcony, that is uh, just about as bad as it possibly can get. And it can happen anywhere. We hear stories in the States of this happening with far worse consequences. Um, But this is something that uh, ended up uh, having a response with a less lethal Arwen rounds deployed by the officers. Tell me how that uh, comes to be. How uh, how are you able to use that less lethal response? Yeah, and without getting into too much detail about our, our, our uh, tactics, a situation
3: like this um, is extremely volatile when we have somebody who's uh, potentially an active shooter or is an active shooter inside an apartment building with a lot of people around, reports of somebody firing off. Uh, a balcony. In this case, it was. It turns out to be a person who was, uh, we believe, was suffering from um, a personal crisis, had some deterior, uh, deteriorating mental health uh, issues that he was dealing with. So, as we're responding, it's really important for us to, you know, make sure that. Um, We're protecting the public, protecting his neighbours. We have to protect ourselves as well as we're moving in. So again, with our very specially trained officers, particularly from our emergency response section, um, we're able to move in, um, contain him and isolate him in a suite, evacuate neighbours, tell other neighbours to shelter in place, make sure essentially that people surrounding him were safe, um, had a very significant police presence throughout the neighbourhood, uh, about 3 dozen police officers who responded to the neighborhood as this was happening um as we were set up as we were uh, attempting to engage with him he did come out um, of his apartment and he was taken into custody he when he when he when he did come out uh, and confronted our officers he was in possession of a loaded gun he was in possession of a knife uh, our officers uh, deployed uh, arwen rounds which are uh, less lethal essentially uh, rubber uh, rounds that that are used as an alternative to lethal force, um, so that we were able to uh, to uh, safely take him into custody without and de-escalate the situation without serious harm to him, without serious harm to our officers, or without serious harm to uh, any members of the public. So while it's a, 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 a really a, a very unfortunate situation in, in, in a lot of respects, because um, at the root of this we believe was deteriorating mental health, we're very fortunate um we
0: were able to resolve it uh without any without it escalating any further than, than it already had an amazing uh result uh, out of a terrible terrible situation uh without anybody seriously injured but there must be some trauma have you reached out to those that witnessed this
3: yeah so we've been in, in contact with um with the um uh, direct witnesses people who called 911 uh, people who saw it and were offering support to them uh, the man in this case the man who was arrested is receiving uh, care um, we hope that he gets the help that he needs he's obviously still going to have to answer to some things and to some his behavior to some of his behavior and his actions um, namely uh, discharging a firearm uh, unlawful possession um, unlawful uh, use of a firearm careless storage of a firearm and various charges that we'll be recommending to uh, to crown council so uh, again, just very volatile situation. Super fortunate that we were able to resolve it
0: um, without any serious harm to him, to, to police or to the public. Sergeant Steve Addison, thank you so much for your time. You bet, Bruce. Take care. 911.
1: 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah,
4: there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going